0: Welcome back to TV Podcast Industries, we're talking about Penny Dreadful, Episode 2, Seance. to tv podcast industries we're continuing our discussions about
1: penny dreadful with episode two of the series seance i'm one of your hosts derek welcome back penny faithful uh, yes i'm one of your other hosts john and joining us again we have ray
2: hey guys how are you going very happy to talk about
0: episode two for penny dreadful mm-hmm yes great to, great to continue this discussion a healthy discussion on the first episode um i'm looking forward to talking about the second one because this probably still to this day is probably the one that's remembered by most people that watch the series i think um, oh yeah just from that title we know exactly what it's about the odds. if anybody wants to find it if everybody if anybody goes right i need that episode that had the big moment for vanessa in it what's it called again oh seance grant i know exactly which one it is <laughs> <laughs> uh, this episode was directed again by jay Biona, and again written by the showrunner john logan john do you want to Give us a summary for episode two.
1: Sure. Vanessa and Sir Malcolm encounter the mysteriously beautiful Dorian Grey at a party. However, things take a turn when renowned medium Madame Carly hosts a seance. Meanwhile, Ethan befriends Miss Brona Croft, a young Irish immigrant and Victor Frankenstein, gets a visit from his firstborn. Now here's the shocking ending you're expecting on the first episode, right, right? <laughs> yes,
2: it's uh it's still traumatizing actually
0: right? yeah <laughs> <laughs> it really is uh this is a great episode of the show i just want to start off really by saying that this is it is absolutely um strikes back into my memory that first feeling i had watching the first episode the first time i saw it five six years ago um it really brings back up exactly those same uh feelings in me the, the same scared Oh, my God, what the hell is happening? Oh, my God, this is a show I'm going to watch until it ends. Uh, It's absolutely what it did for me.
1: Well, that's it. It's like Victor needs to work on his stitch work, I think. If it had been just a little tighter, uh, maybe it could have uh, withheld uh, the the hands of his firstborn because um, then I was thinking maybe you couldn't have played ring-a-ring-a-roses of of because like the centrifugal force would just sort of all of a sudden <laughs> the other person on the other side would just be left with uh, Proteus's kind of arms because the stitching I am so impressed that you've made a Victorian joke on a show uh, exactly like <laughs> <Very impressed. laughs> all, all very about impressed. the pox uh,
0: this episode we're going to talk about our big moments from episode two not as constructed I suppose around individual characters as they were in the first episode uh, John do you want to take us off with your big moment for episode two of the show
1: i'm so glad i was first on this because i just grabbed it Um, and yes it is the seance um with um madam carly collected uh london elite and malcolm murray and vanessa ives i mean for me um when i think of this show i do think of of this Mm seance i think it is a great moment if not one of the greatest and most iconic kind of scenes um from tv and dare i say even film and um, mm-hmm. that i've ever seen it is just one of my favorite scenes um i i have two seance scenes actually that are up there this is one for its um it just scares the bejesus out of you <laughs> um and because it, it it's the way Vanessa commands the room mm-hmm. uh, and the performance that just draws you in. And for me, as an audience member, I felt uncomfortable. I was wriggling. I was squirming. I was feeling kind of Malcolm Murray's kind of probably idea that he wants to hide under the table, you know, <laughs> effectively as um, she, she lays bear his his infidelity um that he has with his wife the death of his son uh, and the pressure of, of Malcolm uh, and what he put on his son and, and in a sense the ambivalence that um he he gives to his daughter and how Mina sees that and um, certainly with having the son and I, I just think um, you know it's it's so uncomfortable. Um she absolutely embodies being possessed. Um she certainly steals the scene from uh Madame Carly, um uh, who's kind of you know, you, you're thinking um at, at that moment that she's really she's she's kind of a, a false seance yeah. that it's just someone coming in she's doing the usual tricks although she is a very important character in her own right uh for season two mm. so she's not as false as we think in this um for sure yeah but she uh, does
0: feel like it's a parlor trick that she just goes yeah, ex- to house. whoever pays her the money and she just kind of shows them kind of uh, what a seance could be like exactly you're right it is terrifying, I think it goes on for such a long time, much longer than you would expect the possession of Vanessa ives to go on, and that makes it so it kind of knocks you off center
1: definitely yeah. um and I think just quickly, the other seance one is the seance from good omens, mm. uh, which we also covered, and <laughs> uh, that from a comedic point of view is also up there with here, but this just for for sheer squirminess and just the power of vanessa ives mm-hmm. in this is just a sight to behold it's great tv yeah Yep.
0: Yeah.
2: john if um if these big moments in this show was part of a, a Boxing Day sale, mm-hmm. you and I would have been grabbing for the same one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we all all would have been going absolutely. for it. Um, but I found I thought I'd pick up the um, the Protea scene at the end. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this séance is is absolutely remarkable. I I don't watch that many horror films and shows. Um, mm-hmm. So when I do see a séance like this and someone's possessed, and Eva Green does a fantastic job, mm-hmm. it is it is utterly like mesmerizing. Um, we. The point with Madame Carly, though, you mentioned, yeah, she she could be a fake. She does mention, though, like she does sense that someone else is there, so she mm-hmm. does pick up on yeah on this other demon or being that Vanessa kind of taps into. Yeah, you know if it's um so uh, yeah, th- th- this was a really uh, fantastic. I can't believe it yeah actually it went it did go a bit longer than you'd expect but mm-hmm. um you're captivated the whole way whole way through absolutely. and it does reveal obviously the the Sir Malcolm um uh, bits of you know family uh, mm-hmm. history which yeah. um which helps as a as a viewer so yeah yeah
0: and and you're wondering how much to trust i suppose of the information that she's providing because some of it could absolutely be the demon uh, that's possessing mm. her trying to knock Malcolm off his perch almost, you know, uh, to tell this room of his peers, uh, what he's really like at home kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like that. and um, I suppose what I mean about it going on too long as well is you want it to end because it's so bloody terrifying. <laughs> so you're like, okay, <laughs> can is, we just yeah. stop now? And it's, and it keeps seeping in more and more. I think Eva Green is just transformed in this performance of this role. We talked about it in episode one where you have that fragility versus the confidence. This is something completely different. So she does feel like she is totally possessed by somebody outside of herself in this role. So really, really good.
1: Yeah, she I mean she makes a noise as well that's just kind of like, ooh, that's really mm. scary. Um mm-hmm. and and the eyes Uh, She also has some pretty fruity language around the table as well, which I think shocks uh, a lot of uh, sort of the polite company in which she finds herself. A lot of see you next Tuesdays um, (laughs) plus, you know, whore and so on coming out here. But, uh, I love the fact that it effectively crashes Mr. Lyle's, uh, we social fate, mm-hmm. uh, as he calls it. Um, again, um, just the, the lighter side, because it is so intense, that scene, yet you do have the lighter Mr. Lyle, as you had mentioned, Ray, on, on the last, uh, on seat C- for episode one. Um, and I, I do like that, you know, for probably obvious reasons he has a slightly strange relationship with his wife uh but he's kind of fairly uh, a little derogatory by it but he's he's kind of my wife is close by no doubt by the gin mm-hmm. if i am to hazard a guess <laughs> and i think um hitting the gin would have been a, a useful thing to do here after um seeing the seance but again when he's trying to get everyone together to come into around the table, he has a, a great moment. Uh, and we we need to use this as well. Pay attention, pay attention, please. You must pay attention to me. Yes. I love the fact <laughs> that he's, he's kind of just wants to hog the, the, the air in the room. Mm-hmm. He is this flamboyant um head of, of Egyptology. And I I love, I love this character, yeah. Yeah. even though is. He kind of has hair dye that would probably suit Donald Trump, actually, um, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, again, he brings that lightness to what is a really unnerving scene. Mm. Um, and such a, a great one. Um, and I, I yeah. think Timothy Dalton's, you know, you can, it's kind of this cross between I, you know, need to get out of here because mm-hmm. everyone is finding out about his dirty secrets and just the anger to me dalton does this really good thing where he kind of exposes his teeth a little mm-hmm. Um <laughs> it's almost like he's grating his teeth um and you kind of wonder what impact it will have on uh their relationship but again i think as well it kind of adds a bit more to vanessa ives that she can be a conduit mm-hmm. for for these supernatural forces uh, in, in this world. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah, Another, like a smaller point to this seance as well. Earlier on, we were introduced to, to Dorian Gray. And so can you imagine he's just come across Vanessa Ives and mm-hmm. one of the early things he experiences with her is attending a seance and she just goes, um, total... Cray-cray. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, know. exactly. Um, and so I think this is a little seed that's planted as well because later on we see Dorian is, is quite intrigued with Vanessa. He knows that there are things um, not totally normal with her. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he's actually the one person that is kind of done one up on Vanessa where she seems to have the measure of everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He seems to have a measure of her as well. Yeah. Um so just a little um side thing there with yeah, with Dorian at that seance. But yeah. absolutely that, that seance is um totally brilliant. if you just want to watch a little bit of Penny Dreadful, just watch the seance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's enough for, for me, really. I uh, mean it's really
0: good. I think it will either drive you off or make you watch the rest of the show. Yeah, or, you'll, or yeah, or the yeah, you'll be yeah. captivated. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. I think Ray, you mentioned in the notes that this would have been something that is quite usual in upper class society in the Victorian area, this idea of having a seance. It's almost like, you know, you had a, you used to have a clown um as the centre of your of your entertainment and then it kinda of moved on and moved on and moved on. And at this point the richest people can afford to have a seance to delight and entertain their audience but if you do believe in the supernatural at all the idea of the seance being the conduit for the supernatural around if you do believe in it the possibility that you're going to draw in great aunt Bessie who has a message for one of the kids and that will be a good laugh for everybody around there's also the possibility that demons can come into the room and possess someone you know (laughs) so so if these people do believe um in this possibility they've really got to come up and see her. I'm not sure they'll ever go to another wee fate that has a, a seance after this moment.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it, it kind of comes again to that point of the upper class within society doing a seance mm-hmm. and that, you know, something that in terms of reading cards or, or that superstition being associated with less educated or um, the, the, the lower classes in, in, in a sense who, mm-hmm. who sort of, you know, Carry the rabbits' foot. Have the the crosses around the the rooms, and even that it is going against probably what the church, which is such a a powerful um force within this world, still mm. uh, would would say would say this is devil worshipping almost. Um, and with Dorian Gray, you have you know that whole um capturing of him and Brona um through the through the the new camera with the lithographs. That again, high society prim and proper all that's what we're led to expect yet there is this sort of feasting on the flesh so to speak um of of the of the victorians Mm -hmm. and i think um i think that's really good you know dorian is all about excess and the sort of new physical or or stimulating experiences not just physical Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think to your point as well ray um he finds a very stimulating person in vanessa ives here Mm. that um is something new and to be consumed um in in that way yeah yeah absolutely um
0: the seance we could probably talk about for quite a while, <laughs> but Ray, do you want to take us on to another major moment for this episode?
2: Yeah, um, I I chose the the end bit, but I want to kind of like broaden that out to mm-hmm. the education of Proteus. Oh, um, yeah. I think that was a massive moment, and I think it was very well done. Um, right from the previous episode, although I did mention there was a lot of tension there. What we see immediately with Proteus is that he's a very, um, very I don't know, he's a peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, creature um wanting to learn uh benevolent and i loved how there was this slow education of him with victor taking him out you mm-hmm. see him interact with the the bigger world um and slowly form his own uh opinions mm-hmm. uh, one of the touching things in in this whole thing was when he starts to actually remember um and this is just towards the very end where he's at yeah. the docks and he remembers his old life mm-hmm. he remembers his his wife Um, and so that raises a lot of questions with, I guess, uh, apart from the obvious, a lot of the ethical questions that Victor Frankenstein is kind of crossing the line with. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Proteus has this older, older life comes in through, um, slowly comes through his memories. And yeah, the big moment is, is the end where he is just standing talking to, to Victor. Talking about his dreams, about what he wants to do, what he can mm-hmm. see, and he literally gets ripped into by the creature behind him. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's one of those moments that um, <laughs> it was so shocking first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that I kind of was hesitant to go. Oh, well, do I? You know, should I see this again? I mean, <laughs> I was I was curious to see it again. Yeah. Um, and I was like looking at it with a finer with a finer lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was um. Certainly the the big moment, we we see the firstborn and we know that Proteus was not the first creature that Victor had created, which we all assume, I guess, Mm -hmm. or we're meant to assume from the start. Yeah. Um, And he's got a lot more of an evil twist to this this creature.
0: Yeah. I think, as I mentioned in episode one, I think the youth of Victor Frankenstein is is what they're playing with here you know Mm. as i uh, as i said you felt like you were catching him early on in his career before he'd gotten the money before he'd gotten the resources to be able to to bring a corpse back to life so you think absolutely at the end of the first episode that he's gone back and he's finally accomplished his goal but this reveal here that he's accomplished it before and it didn't go very well um, Mm. is is really good reveal and also the way it's presented with a hand coming out from the chest mm. of of proteus um you're not sure that there's someone beside behind him because you can't see uh the creature at all yes. behind him you can only see the hand coming out from yeah. inside him so it completely takes you back you're you have that question in your head what the hell's just gone on here is that is that his own hand coming through is it what mm. is it and then the reveal that this creature is behind him uh willing to take his revenge on victor yeah it's, it,
1: it, it is really shocking because you can't i mean for me i I kind of rooted for Proteus here, mm-hmm. you know learning this, yeah, I, I love absolutely. where they go out into the world to experience everything they they bump into Brona and Ethan, mm-hmm. um who are you know in the throes of first love, uh, and in a sense, so is Victor with Proteus in that he sees his creation, but I also i think you know when he starts to recall those memories, as you say, Ray, where he goes, I have a wife called Doreen, he goes and, mm-hmm. and Suddenly this doubt comes, it's like going straight back to after his first creation. Um, he's suddenly unsure. Yeah. He's not entirely, you know, he asks, what am I? Um, and I think that's a really good. And then he's kind of calmed down and you think, right, okay, it's the next steps on. And then yes, uh, his firstborn comes in and, yeah. and sees, uh, puts an end to Proteus, yeah. unfortunately, but it, it is that moment. Cause I, I would just kind of rooted for him. Yeah, it, it was played yeah. really well. Absolutely. I um, think this is something that John Logan
0: is so good at is, uh, you mentioned the ethical questions that it brings up, you know, he he leaves them hanging for you to make your decisions on, uh, on what Victor Frankenstein has done in this, in this episode, we've get much more in depth into the ethical questions as the show goes on with the creature. Um, But the idea basically is that he's a body snatcher. He's, he's stolen this body. He's he, without being asked, he's recreated his life and brought him back. And suddenly he starts getting back some, some previous memories of his previous life. And that's what makes Victor kind of question. Maybe has he done the right thing at all? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I love how it's played as well. I had it in my notes, but I'll I'll mention it here. I love how it's played that he's just sitting there humming the song, leave her Johnny, leave her, and then starts to kind of sing it. Um, I recognize that because I'm a gamer and I played a a game called Assassin's Creed, which had lots of sea shanties in it. Um, The song itself is a very well-known sea shanty and I love the recognition from Victor Frankenstein is, well, he's singing that, therefore he must be a sailor. He must have a connection to the sea and that's why he brings Mm -hmm. him out to the ocean. But none of this is explained on screen. None of this is in conversation at all. It's just left for you to recognize that Victor would know this. Uh, in the In the Victorian era, there's lots of sailors. If Victor hears this, this particular song he knows exactly a lot of the past of this character and will kind of use that to entice him maybe it was victor bringing him out uh, to those locations where he's able to identify all the ships and uh, and kind of get that spark of his past back it probably is quite important in in victor's research i suppose he doesn't want to just um reanimate a corpse that doesn't know anything he wants to bring people back to life and um, that's what he wants to do he wants to make sure that life continues everlasting in a way why what's the point in bringing back everlasting life if the person doesn't know who they are so um but there's loads of nice ethical questions in there as well
2: yeah it makes you wonder also as well because at the end of the the episode where um how, how shall we call him the creature the firstborn mm-hmm. coming yeah. through yeah so, one of the first things, I wonder if Victor must have known this, that he's imbued with massive strength, like mm-hmm. immense strength, yeah. uh, something inhuman as well. Um And yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I, I wonder then, what is his end game with, mm-hmm. with this? Obviously, it's curiosity with um, conquering death and creating life. Mm-hmm. But what is his end game? What is he doing? Uh, what does he want Proteus to do like, as you say, is he leading him towards these um these locations to have him wonder about or or reignite his past life? but if so what what purpose would that leave lead as well right. um it's it's very very interesting it 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 does seem um like he's he's thought of this idea to to create life, but mm-hmm. he hasn't thought beyond that Absolutely. and and that's where all that's where everything just falls apart because he hasn't thought of the complications.
0: Like what, what's the Jurassic Park quote? The, um, they're too busy, uh, concentrating what they can do and, uh, that they don't mm. realize whether they should or not. Yeah. Uh, you do get that feeling that Victor Frankenstein, after that discussion in episode one, you get that feeling that he wants to go back to the explorer society, the scientific society of Britain and go. This is what I created. Look what I did. Am I better than all of the rest of you? Yeah. Um. That's why he's so focused on this idea because he feels nobody else can do what he can do
1: because he's that smart and that intelligent. Um. Uh, but whether he should be doing it or not, well, yeah, he shouldn't do really. it. exactly. And I, but I wonder whether that's teased out more in the first part of episode three. Hmm. So I like part of me is is he trying to bring his his mother back in, in a sense? Um, Maybe. Is, oh, yes, is, is it through? Yes. I, is it around that or? That he does have this poetic notion as well, and um you know you you have um in, in episode three were his firstborn talks, you know would we be able to understand the um the universe by an eternity by looking at a daffodil in in respect to Wordsworth, I wandered lonely as a cloud, mm-hmm. and um it it's that he has this notion, and I think it is maybe that God complex uh, as well. Mm. But I I think it's related to his, his mother. Um, I think, yeah, we'll probably talk about that again, but, um, I don't think it's as specific
0: as him wanting a particular person back. I think he doesn't want anybody else to experience that very formative experience that he went through. I think that might be it. Mm. just something like that. Um, Ray, any more notes on on uh, Proteus at
2: all? Um, no. No, that, that was it. Um I'm still kinda of shaking at the, the last scene. <laughs> at that last scene, <laughs> <thing>. absolutely.
0: <laughs> um I'll I'll go on to a slightly lighter character, I suppose. Um Brona Croft, played by Billy Piper. Um I want to talk a little bit about her because I think <laughs> you say a little
1: lighter she is a hooker well true,
0: true. <laughs> yeah um what, what i do like about this character billy piper um, at the time was very well known as being in doctor who um she was the main protagonist i suppose in the show she was the point of view character for everything that was going on in the reboot of doctor who at the time so it was fascinating to see her move into this role on this very scary show uh, and be this character that she is i think the way i described her uh, when i wrote it down was northern irish and consumption filled were the basic characteristics <laughs> of, of the character. But I, what I love is it's a v- fairly typical trope. When you have a show or a movie that concentrates on Victorian era, they will talk about these kind of hard, um, hooker with the heart of gold kind of characters that's the way they'll frame uh, what's going on but what i love in this show is that it takes the time to explore what her life is actually like yeah what it what really means to be a character like Brona, a young woman from northern ireland an immigrant into the uk who's had to leave northern ireland because she was pushed out of it and the reason she's moved to the uk is because she actually wants a job in a factory she thought that this is her way out she's leaving a very small country for a massive city like london thinking she can work in a factory and the industrial revolution hits as she comes over it's taken over and there are no more jobs because Everything is starting to become uh, more about mechanization and yeah. less about people being able to get jobs for an honest day's pay. So, um, so because she's a young woman, she has taken to using her body to uh, make whatever money she needs to be able to live her life. You see that she is very poor. Um, she doesn't have two cents to rub together. I love her introduction to, to Ethan as he's uh, drinking whiskey at the bar. Also great bartender. Um, when Ethan says do you have any whiskey <laughs> yeah. and he goes I think the more appropriate question is do you have any money for the whiskey <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but Brona arriving and taking the whiskey off Ethan and just drinking it shot for shot with Ethan uh, shows you the kind of person that she is and really you can tell there's a connection between those two characters more so than a lot of the other relationships that are going on within the episodes I feel that Ethan and Brona do have a very kindred spirit between the two of them both have, ha- have done bad things in their past and don't really want to talk about it. they just want to move on uh, which I think is really interesting But one of the jobs that Brona takes is our introduction to probably another one of the most famous characters uh, for this show. Dorian Gray um, is a character that comes with so much expectation of who he is. Um, The character is based on Oscar Wilde's novel, uh, The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Um, So he is a character who is known as being foppish and beautiful and uh, sexual and uh, in every way that is the way the character is seen. And to see his introduction here, where he just looked completely bored by this rent for a minute hooker who comes in to take some pornographic lithographs for him. He just looks totally bored because she's just like every other woman he's seen before. But then the consumption hits, then the blood hits, then the moment where he realizes she's syphilitic and she's also about to die. And then he turns into this absolutely horrific character for me. You know, he's Mm. been this... He is a beautiful character. The whole point of the character is that he is able to live in the upper classes and gets invited to parties that he doesn't even know anybody at just because of his beauty and because he's the type of person that has orgies and has parties at his own house. Yet in this moment where he just completely tears apart Brona for her disease, effectively, he says he's never... He's never had a dying creature before. Does she feel pain more, more deep than anybody else? He wants to know all about her, but in this really gorish way, um, which just takes instantly gives you the type of character that Dorian is. And I think it's great because for the rest of the show, actually for a lot of the other episodes of the show, the way he talks and the way he interacts with people, he seems like a very, just a very pretty character who just goes about their day doing and getting whatever they want to. But in this scene, because Brona has been developed as this character that you like a lot, I I took an instant
1: dislike to Dorian. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's his need for excess, but Mm -hmm. it has to be new and stimulating. And as you say, um like just that moment where she coughs blood onto him and it's mm. just this god they like to do that in the show don't y- they? you see <laughs> um yeah absolutely you see uh that that moment on, on his face where he kind of lights up because mm. this is the, the something new that he isn't bored of yet i mean he is as i think you mentioned it he is almost the victorian equivalent of a hipster um, and totally. it's kind of like <laughs> avocado on toast has now become passe mm-hmm. he's kind of like well these massive orgies it's kind of oh, okay take them or leave them uh but an orgy with people coughing blood on me now that's something different something new yeah something, and something yeah. new Um, so he he's very you know he's prim proper. He he acts that high society, um, but he is depraved um, and totally about the excesses of the mind, the body, um, and and the, yeah, he's he's a very tough character in that mm-hmm. sense because he's so charming as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just think Dorian Gray I absolutely agree with both of you as well. But I think it, what makes him so repulsive is his. Um, total self absorption right, mm-hmm. with with this um you know as you mentioned John the excesses but he has no regard he has no regard for broner's condition or how she is feeling with her, um, you know, her condition as well. It's all about feeding what he finds interesting, what he finds nice. And that is, I think, the core of why he is such a despicable character. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and he is all about the excesses as as well. But, um, yeah, uh, so I was like you, Derek, as well. I mean, as you say, he's very handsome, very handsome man, um, on the, on the surface. And this is, um, Pure Dorian Gray on the surface is very, mm-hmm. um, very good looking, but underneath is is just
0: a monster, really. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
2: Uh, it was a great introduction to him.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and just does anything for himself it's, it's very much it. And I just like the introduction to Brona here. I definitely wanted to talk about this character because I think she's so well played. Yeah. Um, every time she's on the screen, I think you kind of go. Oh, hope I th- hope this week it's going to go okay for Brenda. <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope she's going to yeah. get some good news here. Maybe she'll find uh, a person that will take care of all of her needs and ta- and bring her to hospital and take care of her. But um, it, but unfortunately, she doesn't seem to be that character for a lot of these uh, early episodes. At least
1: it's really weird when I first watched this as well. I really didn't like her Northern Irish accent. It yeah. didn't feel right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know what you mean. But in in rewatching it it feels absolutely pitch perfect now i don't know what it was um it's from but, living over here for longer john but, yeah well that's probably it yeah <laughs> i mean it's just like um but and i i love some of her turn turn of phrases as well mm-hmm. just like oh my lungs are buggered um and so on uh, it's just really nice, but I think her her accent is really good. Um, but I remember first time round, I was thinking, oh no, I thought that was actually the weakest part of this series mm-hmm. at the time, was her accent. But I, I don't get that at all uh, in this kind of rewatch at all.
2: The great thing about this series, and we're only delving into episode two, is that there is a a sizable cast, and mm-hmm. all of the characters are so intriguing. The, yeah. the great thing about what John Logan's doing is that he's paying attention to all of them, and mm-hmm. none of them seem to... Sure, I mean, in this episode and in episode one, Vanessa gets a lot of the limelight, but she mm-hmm. da- she does take a back seat in the subsequent episodes as well, allows the others to flesh out their story, yeah. um, and I think he really does balance all these characters really well. And Brona is, uh, at the beginning as well, I, I found her, you know... Because she wasn't one of the classical characters of literature. I was yeah. the least interested in her, but mm-hmm. she has a very compelling story. Um, yeah. and, and we'll get to it later on with episode three, it was definitely episode four. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I really find that quite interesting. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, as you say, I think that's one of the interesting balances that Logan does with this show. Um, effectively, Dorian Gray is not a central character. He shouldn't be. He's not part of the team. He's not going after the supernatural. He is supernatural in himself. Um, he's a peripheral character that is brought in and brought to the forefront whenever is needed. Um, but I do like how they how they do that with many characters over the course of the show. I think it's it's really fascinating. Um, that's it for my, uh, my big point for episode two. Uh,
1: any notes we haven't talked about in the episode? Um, I've got a few. Okay. Again, coming back to Dorian's pornography, it sounds like I'm obsessed and I'm not. I I can absolutely uh, put that up front, uh, Penny Faithful. Um, But certainly the, the interesting thing I'm going to pull out of it is that there's a long history of this in, in Victorian society uh, based around Hollywell Street, um, and it was called the home of the dirty book trade. Nice. Um, and it's just kind of quite nice because as well, Penny Dreadful in terms of the title mm-hmm. is about these small, almost precursors to comics in a sense, these horror uh, novella mm-hmm. uh, being thrown out and we see being turned into, to plays, um, as well, uh, that were consumed, uh, sort of en masse, uh, almost like a, a, proto, uh, magazine, yeah. um, and, and it same, same. So just, that element uh for for me there yeah we do get a first
0: mention of penny dreadfuls in here don't we we hear from yes. the uh, the police officers that are investigating the murders that are going on they mentioned the sounds like something that comes out of those penny dreadfuls yeah um, so it is something that is a mass market production of little horror stories to scare you before you go to bed kind of thing um so i like that they mentioned it within the show
1: exactly um and that's kind of the right There is another attack here in the park with Mm -hmm. the lamplighter uh, and the lady uh, eating the apple Uh um, as well. So, again, these attacks that happened uh, in the first episode are kind of continuing. There is a really nice moment where we see uh, Ethan at the um, site of the first attack with the police there Mm -hmm. um, as well. So, again, just... Connecting him to that scene yeah. and what curse he he may have. I have to say, I kept wondering after that opening scene. This episode, where you
0: see the hand, so the arm ripped off and the hand just sitting there with the apple, and I was wondering, yeah. is this going to be the way the show goes? Every episode, we're going to open with this <laughs> slaughtering of some character that doesn't look like they're going to get slaughtered. You know, yeah. Um, is it just, is it just going to be that every episode, the first episode being you know the, the mother and daughter getting slaughtered, and then this episode just a, a woman eating an apple on a bench uh, gets uh, her arm torn off.
1: So. Um, and so. Something just around the seance as well, um, that. And it connects back to episode one. It's kind of informative, again, of Malcolm's character, I suppose. uh, Were. Um, Vanessa asks through his son's sort of medium, um, did you name a mountain after me? And we know the answer is no, mm-hmm. because we, we have in episode one where he says, I named a mountain after myself. Yeah. Um, despite, uh, his <laughs> son oh, dying ass. on that trip, uh, through dysentery, um, probably because he needed to be there to prove to his father that he was capable and an explorer. So again, just to, like connect that to, to his character. Um, and I like that. now I named it after myself. <laughs> basically. Sorry. Uh, so, you know, pretty, okay, pretty low blow there mm-hmm. from, from Malcolm. Um, and then I suppose we do get a little more flesh on the bone of the, um, the Egyptian mythology as well. Mm-hmm. This idea that, um, it, the co-joining of Amunet um, and Amun ra forebodes the end of man effectively mm-hmm. um and i, I think Ms, uh, mr lyle's talks that you know don't tell her this because sh- who wants to know that they're being hunted by the devil mm-hmm. so again you know th- th- this really kind of makes her 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 position so much more precarious um you know and very strong yet external factors making her fragile effectively that you know she's been hunted by something so powerful is she up to that task mm-hmm. we don't absolutely. know so uh, i thought that was that was pretty nice absolutely
2: yeah i um, i i've got a few just here um just further to what john was saying um about those scenes that they're with the attacks mm. i find it interesting that they are at the very beginning but you can almost not like, forget about them because mm. they're so They're at the beginning and there's so much happening in the main part of the episode that it becomes like left on the wayside. But it is good because it it does keep on bubbling away and and it does progress the character. Um, you know, I'm going to say it now, but (laughs) it just progresses uh, where that kind of ends up. So, um, yeah, I just find I remember on first viewing, just watching it going, it's good because it connects it with Jack the Ripper, but where Mm -hmm. is this going? It's not really doing much.
0: yeah yeah yeah. i was i absolutely was wondering whether the show was going to explore who jack the ripper was Mm. at the beginning yeah but they have this drop line in this episode where they go oh well it can't be jack because it's not the same mo he just goes after any woman or any anybody it doesn't matter their class or their status so um so it was kind of going okay well why is this in here then you know it would make a lot of yeah. sense if they decided in with jack the ripper and that was part of what was going on in the show but yeah
1: well you have that great moment as well where malcolm goes to the the police station and the mm. detective in charge where he says you need to change your mode of of operandi because you're you need to hunt a monster and mm. um, you mm. don't need to detect it's about hunting um you know and as that explorer uh but he he's the kind of on a recce for himself because that's where we kind of find out that that you know there are no teeth marks in the size of the neck they aren't drained of blood and that actually they've been ripped apart and it's something where we see that is not jack the ripper who effectively uh sliced um and to kill his um his hookers uh Mm. in in uh soho or I think, or oh, Clerkenwell, or wherever he killed people in Victorian London. <laughs> you forgot to research that bit. Didn't I you? did. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> he killed them in London. Yes, yes. <laughs> there we go.
2: Yeah, uh, and just a couple of things with the the seance. Um, I think Derek, you touched upon it as well. Very mm-hmm. popular during the age, and and. Um, as you say, John, this under underbelly of the Victorian era. Um, but this was more of a kind of – I guess it was more of a naughty thing to do, as you're saying. Like it goes against the mm-hmm. church and it was something quite uh, dangerous potentially. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so table turning or seances were very common. Mesmerism or they used to call it animal magnetism was right. um, very a popular thing there where people would be almost possessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and funnily enough, this was a precursor to the, the Ouija board, right. um, which I – didn't realise, but, yeah, it, that got its origin from a, a board game from Parker Brothers. Um, mm-hmm. So for those of people that stand <laughs> oh. by the widget board and, and believe it, um, it was a board game. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's become something bigger. So Yeah.
1: And
0: Created by the people it. that brought us, uh, brought us Monopoly afterwards,
1: yeah. Yes. No, I was going to say, <laughs> exactly. trivial pursuit as well. Sure it's is from true. the yeah. Parker Brothers. Yeah. Okay. That's it, yeah. yeah. Well, so, what yeah, a diverse uh, board game range they have. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's it.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and just finally, um, sorry, with uh, Amunet and Amun-Ra, I, I did a bit of digging. I thought this sounded really cool in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, with the mythology, it doesn't extend to that, although she, uh, Amunet and Amun-Ra were the, one of the first gods or deities of, of Egyptian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, Amunet gets replaced by M- Mut or Mutt, Right. Um, who becomes the main partner of Amon Ra? And uh, Amonette is more a, a protector of pharaohs. So she's still known as the Hidden One, but yeah. um, there's no dark side element to her.
1: There is a, a there is an easy to consume uh, history of, of this as well called The Mummy, the film. Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so if anyone wants kind of the lighter hearted sort of look in Amonette and Amon Ra, mm. it is the Mummy series. Uh, one sh- of my favorite sort of trashy kind of films it's not trashy it's just good fun it's very trashy i'm not too sure how
0: historically accurate it is probably not at all (laughs) but it's good fun i think they may have just kind of pointed a finger found a name in in a book and then created a history (laughs) Uh, that's it that's our discussion on episode two of petty dreadful seance
1: what a great episode that was definitely um i think one of my my favorites ever and as I say, the Good Omens version of the seance, uh, from a comedic point of view, uh, you should definitely check out our, our coverage of that because I have to say, I just couldn't stop laughing, yeah, uh, print, yeah. which is the complete opposite <laughs> of, of this one. Um, and they are two of my favourite seance scenes ever. Mm-hmm. I think there may only be two, but these are <laughs> really good.
2: Yeah, um, a yeah, very strong episode. I think... To follow up from the first episode, which really has to set the bar, mm. uh, for the second, this episode to raise the bar even higher is is a, an immense thing. So, um, it, it really bodes well for the series if you watch it from beginning to to end. Absolutely, the journey. absolutely.
0: Yeah. Let's see how episode three compares. That's it for episode two. We'll be back with episode three later on this week. Hi, this is Derek from TV Podcast Industries. We hope you've been enjoying the Penny Dreadful rewatch that we've been doing. We wanted to take this opportunity to say a big thank you to all of you, our supporters on Patreon. Thanks to your donations and your support, we've been able to pay a significant proportion of our hosting costs for the podcast. It's really wonderful that you've taken the time to support us through Patreon. And we hope this podcast goes some way to expressing our gratitude to all of you. So, to Amy, Claire, Into the Night, Jessica, John, Oren, Robert, Steve, and Stuart, thank you so much for all of your support so far. Hopefully you'll enjoy everything else we've got planned coming up in 2020. Thanks, everyone.